Chapter 3 of Gullible's Travels, etc. by Ring Lardner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Gullible's Travels 1. I promised the wife that if anybody asked me what kind of a time did I have at Palm Beach, I'd say I had a swell time. And if they asked me who did we meet, I'd tell them everybody that was worth meeting. And if they asked me didn't the trip cost a lot, I'd say yes, but it was worth the money. I promised her I wouldn't spill none of the real details. But if you can't break a promise you make to your own wife, what kind of a promise can you break? Answer me to that, Edgar. I'm not one of these kind of people that'd keep a joke to themselves just because the joke was on them, but there's plenty of our friends that I wouldn't have them hear about it for the world. I wouldn't tell you, only I know you're not the village gossip and won't crack it to anybody. Not even your own missus, see? I don't trust no women. It was along last January when I and the wife was both hit by the society, Bacillus. I think it was at the opera. You remember me telling you about us and the Hatches going to Carmen, and then me taking my missus and her sister Bess and four of one suit named Bishop to see the three kings? Well, I'll own up that I enjoyed wearing the soup and fish and mingling amongst the high poli and pretending we really was somebody. And I know my wife enjoyed it, too, though there was nothing said between us at the time. The next stage was where our friends wasn't good enough for us no more. We used to be tickled to death to spend an evening playing rummy with the hatches. But all of a sudden they didn't seem to be no fun in it, and when Hatch'd call up we'd stall out of it. From the number of times I told him that I or the missus was tired out and going right to bed, he must have thought we'd got jobs as telephone line men. We quit attending picture shows because the rest of the audience wasn't the kind of people you'd care to mix with. We didn't go over to Ben's and dance because there was no class to the crowd there. About once a week we'd beat it to one of the good hotels downtown, all dressed up like a horse, and have our dinner with the rest of the E-Lite. There wasn't nobody talked to us, only the waiters, but we could look as much as we liked, and it was sport trying to guess the names of the gang at the next table. Then we took to reading the society news at breakfast. It used to be that I didn't waste time on nothing but the market and sporting pages, but now I pass them up and listen while the missus rattled off what was doing on the Lake Shore Drive. Every little while we'd see where so-and-so was at Palm Beach, or just going there, or just coming back. We got to kidding about it. Well, I'd say, we'd better be starting pretty soon or we'll miss the best part of the season. Yes, the wife would say back. We'd go right now if it wasn't for all them engagements next week. We kidded and kidded till finally one night she forgot we was just kidding. You didn't take no vacation last summer, she says. No, says I, there wasn't no chance to get away. But you promised me, she says, that you'd take one this winter to make up for it. I know I did, I says, but it'd be a sucker play to take a vacation in weather like this. The weather ain't like this everywhere, she says. You must have been going to night school, I says. Another thing you promised me, says she, was that when you could afford it, you'd take me on a real honeymoon trip to make up for the dinky one we had. That still goes, I says when I can afford it. You can afford it now, says she. We don't owe nothing, and we got money in the bank. Yes, I says, pretty close to three hundred bucks. You forgot something, she says. You forget them war babies. 
Did I tell you about that? Last fall I done a little dabbling in crucial steel, and at this time I'm telling you about, I still had hold of it, but stood to pull down six hundred. Not bad, eh? It'd be a mistake to let loose now, I says. All right, she says, hold on, and I hope you lose every cent. You never did care nothing for me. Then we done a little spooning, and then I asked her what was the big idea. We ain't swelled on ourselves, she says, but I know and you know that the friends we've been associating with ain't in our class. They don't know how to dress, and they can't talk about nothing but their goldfish and their meat bills. They don't try to get nowheres, but all they do is play rummy and take in the majestic. I and you like nice people and good music and things that's worthwhile. It's a crime for us to be wasting our time with riff and wrath that'd run around barefooted if it wasn't for the police. I wouldn't say we'd wasted much time on em lately, I says. No, says she, and I've had a better time these last three weeks than I ever had in my life. And you can keep right on having it, I says. I could have a whole lot better time, and you could too, she says, if we could get acquainted with some congenial people to go around with, people its taste is the same as iron. If any of them people calls up on the phone, I says, I'll be as pleasant to em as I can. You're always too smart, says the wife. You don't pay any attention to no schemes of mine. What's the scheme now? You'll find fault with it because I thought it up, she says. If it was your scheme, you'd think it was grand. If it really was good, you wouldn't be scared to spring it, I says. Will you promise to go through with it, says she. If it ain't too ridiculous, I told her. See, I knowed that'd be the way, she says. Don't talk crazy, I says. Where'd we be if we went through with every plan you ever sprang? Will you promise to listen to my side of it without acting cute, she says. So I didn't see no harm in going that far. I want you to take me to Palm Beach, says she. I want you to take a vacation, and that's where we'll spend it. And that ain't all we'll spend, I says. Remember your promise, says she. So I shut up and listened. The dope she gave me was along these lines. We could get special round-trip rates on any of the railroads, and that part of it wouldn't cost nowhere near as much as a man would naturally think. The hotel rates was pretty steep, but the meals were thrown in, and just imagine what them meals would be. And we'd be staying under the same roof with the Vanderbilts and Goulds, and eating at the same table, and probably, before we was there a week, calling them Steve and Gus. They was dancing every night, and all the guests danced with each other, and how would it feel fox-trotting with the president of the B&O, or the Delmonico girls from New York? And all Chicago society was down there, and when we met them, we'd know them for life, and have some real friends amongst them when we got back home. That's how she had it figured, and she must have been practicing her speech, because it certainly did sound good to me. To make it short, I fell, and dated her up to meet me downtown the next day, and call on the railroad bandits. The first one we seen admitted that his was the best route, and that he wouldn't only soak us one hundred and forty-seven dollars and seventy cents to and from Palm Beach and back, including an apartment from here to Jacksonville, and as many stopovers as we wanted to make. He told us we wouldn't have to write for no hotel accommodations, because the hotels had an agent right over on Madison Street that'd be glad to do everything to us. So we says we'd be back later, and then we beat it over to the Florida East Coast's local studio. How much for a double room by the week? I asked the man. 
There ain't no weekly rates, he says. By the day, it'd be $12 and up for two at the Breakers and $14 and up at Poinciana. I like the Breakers better, says I. You can't get in there, he says. They're full for the season. That's a long spree, I says. Can we get in at the other hotel? asks the wife. I can find out, says the man. We want a room with a bath, says she. That'd be more, says he. That'd be $15 or $16 and up. What do we want of a bath, I says, with a whole Atlantic Ocean in the front yard? I'm afraid you'd have trouble getting a bath, says the man. The hotels is both of them pretty well filled up on account of the war in Europe. What's that got to do with it, I asked him. A whole lot, he says. The people that usually goes abroad is all down to Palm Beach this winter. I don't see why, I says. If one of them U-boats hit them, they'd at least be getting their bath for nothing. We left him with the understanding that he was to wire down there and find out what was the best they could give us. We called him up in a couple of days, and he told us we could have a double room without no bath at the Poinciana beginning the 15th of February. He didn't know just what the price would be. Well, I fixed it up to take my vacation starting the 10th and sold out my crucial steel and divided the spoils with the railroad company. We decided we'd stop off in St. Augustine two days because the missus found out somewheres that there might be two or three of the 400 lingering there and we didn't want to miss nobody. Now, I says, all we got to do is set round and wait for the 10th of the month. Is that so, says the wife. I suppose you're perfectly satisfied with your clothes. I've got to be, I says, unless the Salvation Army has something that'll fit me. What's the matter with our charge account, she says. I don't like to charge nothing, I says, when I know there ain't no chance of ever paying for it. All right, she says. Then we're not going to Palm Beach. I'd rather stay home than go down there looking like general housework. Do you need clothes yourself? I asked her. I certainly do, she says. About two hundred dollars worth. But I got one hundred and fifty dollars of my own. All right, I says. I'll stand for the other fifty, and then we're all set. No, we're not, she says. That just fixes me. But I want you to look as good as I do. Nature'll see to that, I says. But there was no arguing with her. Our trip, she says, was an investment. It was going to get us in right with people worthwhile. And she wouldn't have a chance in the world unless we looked the part. So before the tenth came round, we was long two new evening gowns, two female sport suits, four or five pairs of shoes, all colors, one tuxedo dinner coat, three dress shirts, half a dozen other kinds of shirts, two pairs of transparent white trousers, one new business suit, and Lord knows how much underwear and how many hats and stockings. And I had till the 15th of March to pay off the mortgage on the old homestead. Just as we was getting ready to leave for the train, the phone rung. It was Mrs. Hatch, and she wanted us to come over for a little rummy. I was shaving, and the missus done the talking. What did you tell her? I asked. I told her we was going away, says the wife. I bet you forgot to mention where we was going, I says. Pay me, says she. 2. I thought we was in Venice when we woke up next morning, but the porter says it was just Cairo, Illinois. The river went crazy, and I bet there wasn't a room without a bath in that old burg. As we sat down on the dinner for breakfast, the train was going across the longest bridge I ever seen, and it looked like we were so near the water that you could reach right out and grab a handful. 
The wife was a little wabbly. I wonder if it's really safe, she says. If the bridge stays up, we're all right, says I. But the question is, will it stay up, she says. I wouldn't bet a nickel either way on a bridge, I says. They's treacherous little devils. They'd cross you as soon as they'd cross this river. The train men must be nervous, she says. Just see how we're dragging along. They're giving the fish a chance to get off the track, I says. It's against the law to spear fish with a cow catcher this time of year. Well, the wife was so nervous she couldn't eat nothing but toast and coffee, so I figured I was justified in going to the prunes and steak and eggs. After breakfast, we went out in what they call the sun parlor. It was a glassed-in room on the tail end of the rear coach, and it must have been a pleasant place to sit and watch the scenery. But there was a gang of missionaries or something had all the seats, and they never budged out of them all day. Every time they'd come to a crossroads, they'd toss a stack of Bible studies out of the back window for the southern heathen to pick up and read. I suppose they thought they was doing a lot of good for their fellow men, but their fellow passengers, meanwhile, was getting the worst of it. Speaking of the scenery, it certainly was something grand. First we'd pass a few pine trees with fuzz on them, and then a couple acres of yellow mud. Then there'd be more pine trees and more fuzz, and then more yellow mud. And after a while we'd come to some pine trees with fuzz on them, and then if we watched close, we'd see some yellow mud. Every few minutes the train would stop and then start up again on low. That meant the engineer suspected he was coming to a station and was scared that if he run too fast he wouldn't see it, and if he run past it without stopping the inhabitants would never forgive him. You see, there's a regular schedule of duties that's followed out by the more prominent citizens down these parts. After their wives attended to the chores and got the breakfast, they roll out of bed and put on their overalls and eat. Then they get on their horse or mule or cow or dog and ride down to the station and wait for the next train. When it comes, they have a contest to see which can count the passengers first. The losers has to promise to work one day the following month. If one fellow loses three times in the same month, he generally always kills himself. All the towns has got five or six private residences and seven or eight two apartment buildings and a grocery and a post office. They told me that somebody in one of them burgs, I forget which one, got a letter the day before we came through. It was misdirected, I guess. The two apartment buildings is constructed on the ground floor with a porch to divide one flat from the other. One's the housekeeping side, and the other's just a place for the husband and father to lay around in so's they won't be disturbed by watching the women work. It was a blessing to them boys when the states went dry. Just think what a strain it must have been to keep lifting glasses and hunting in their overalls for a dime. In the afternoon, the missus went into our apartment and took a nap, and I moseyed into the reading room and looked over some of the comical magazines. There was a fat guy come in and sat next to me. I'd heard him at lunch telling the dining car conductor what Wilson should have done, so I wasn't surprised when he opened up on me. Tiresome trip, he says. I didn't think it was worthwhile arguing with him. Must have been a lot of rain through here, he says. Either that, says I, or else the sprinkling wagon runs shy of streets. He laughed as much as it was worth. Where do you come from? he asked me. Dear old Chicago, I says. I'm from St. Louis, he says. You're Frank, says I. I'm really as much at home one place as another, he says. The wife likes to travel, and why shouldn't I humor her? I don't know, I says. I haven't the pleasure. 
Seems like we're going all the while, he says. It's hot springs or New Orleans or Florida or Atlantic City or California or somewheres. You get passes, I asked him. I guess I could if I wanted to, he says. Some of my best friends is way up in the railroad business. I got one like that, I says. He generally stands on the fourth or fifth car behind the engine. You travel much, he asked me. I don't live in St. Louis, says I. Is this your first trip south? he asked. Oh, no, I says. I live on 65th Street. I meant, have you ever been down this way before? Oh, yes, says I. I come down every winter. Where do you go? he asked. That's what I was laying for. Palm Beach, says I. I used to go there, he says, but I've cut it out. It ain't like it used to be. They leave everybody in now. Yes, I says, but a man don't have to mix with them. You can't just ignore people that comes up and talks to you, he says. Are you bothered that way much? I asked. It's what drove me away from Palm Beach, he says. How long since you've been there? I asked him. How long you been going there? He says. Me? Says I. Five years. We just missed each other, says he. I quit six years ago this winter. Then it couldn't have been there I seen you, says I, but I know I seen you somewheres before. It might have been most anywheres, he says. There's few places I haven't been at. Maybe it was across the pond, says I. Very likely, he says, but not since the war started. I've been steering clear of Europe for two years. So have I for longer than that, I says. It's certainly an awful thing, this war, says he. I believe you're right, says I, but I haven't heard nobody express it just that way before. I only hope, he says, that we succeed in keeping out of it. If we got in, would you go? I asked him. Yes, sir, he says. You wouldn't beat me, says I. I bet I'd reach Brazil as quick as you. Oh, I don't think there'd be any action in South America, he says. We'd fight defensive at first, and most of it would be along the Atlantic coast. Then maybe we could get accommodations in Yellowstone Park, says I. There's no sense in this country getting involved, he says. Wilson hasn't handled it right. He either ought to have went stronger or not so strong. He's wrote too many notes. You certainly get right to the root of a thing, says I. You must have thought a good deal about it. I know the conditions pretty well, he says. I know how far you can go with them people over there. I've been amongst them a good part of the time. I suppose, says I, that a fellow just naturally don't like to butt in. But if I was you, I'd consider it my duty to romp down to Washington and give him all the information I had. Wilson picked his own advisers, said he. Let him learn his lesson. That ain't hardly fair, I says. Maybe you was out of town, or your phone was busy or something. I don't know Wilson, nor he don't know me, he says. That oughtn't to stop you from helping him out, says I. If you seen a man drowning, would you wait for some friend of the both of you to come along and make the introduction? There ain't no comparison in them two cases, he says. Wilson ain't never called on me for help. You don't know if he has or not, I says. You don't stick in one place long enough for a man to reach you. My office in St. Louis always knows where I'm at, says he. My stenographer can reach me any time within ten to twelve hours. I don't think it's right to have this country's whole future dependent on a St. Louis stenographer, I says. 
That's nonsense, says he. I ain't making no claim that I could save or not save this country. But if I and Wilson was acquainted, I might tell him some facts that would help him out in his foreign policy. Well, then, I says, it's up to you to get acquainted. I'd introduce you myself, only I don't know your name. My name's Gould, says he, but you're not acquainted with Wilson. I could be easy says I. I could get on a train he was going somewheres on, and then go and set beside him and begin to talk. Lots of people make friends that way. It was getting along towards supper time, so I excused myself and went back to the apartment. The missus had woke up and wasn't feeling good. What's the matter? I asked her. This old train, she says. I'll die if it don't stop going round them curves. As long as the track curves, the best thing the train can do is curve with it, I says. You may die if it keeps curving, but you'd die a whole lot sooner if it left the rails and went straight ahead. What you been doing? she asked me. Just talking to one of the ghouls, says I. Gould, she says. What Gould? Well, I says, I didn't ask him his first name, but he's from St. Louis, so I suppose it's Ludwig or Heine. Oh, she says, disgusted, I thought you meant one of the real ones. He's a real one, all right, says I. He's so classy that he's passed up Palm Beach. He says it's getting too common. I don't believe it, says the wife. And besides, we don't have to mix up with everybody. He says they butt right in on you, I told her. They'll get a cold reception from me, she says. But between the curves and the fear of Palm Beach not being so exclusive as it used to be, she couldn't eat no supper, and I had another big meal. The next morning we landed in Jacksonville three hours behind time and narrowly missed connections for St. Augustine by over an hour and a half. There wasn't another train till one thirty in the afternoon, so we had some time to kill. I went shopping and bought a shave and five or six rickies. The wife helped herself to a chair in the writing room of one of the hotels and told pretty near everybody in Chicago that she wished they was along with us, accompanied by a picture of the Elks Home or the Germania Club or trout fishing at Atlantic Beach. While I was getting my dime's worth in the tonsorial parlors, I happened to look up at a calendar on the wall and noticed it was the 12th of February. How does it come that everything's open here today, I says to the barber. Don't you all know it's Lincoln's birthday? Is that so, he says. How old is he? Three. We'd wired ahead for rooms at the Alcazar, and when we landed in St. Augustine, there was a motor bus from the hotel to meet us at the station. Southern hospitality, I says to the wife, and we was both pleased till they relieved us of four bits apiece for the ride. Well, they hadn't neither one of us slept good the night before, while we was jolting through Georgia, so when I suggested a nap, there was no argument. But our clothes ought to be pressed, says the missus. Call up the valet and have it done while we sleep. So I called up the valet, and sure enough, he came. Hello, George, I says. You see, we're going to lay down and take a nap, and we was wondering if you could crease up these two suits and have them back here by the time we want them. Certainly, sir, says he. And how much will it cost? I asked him. One dollar a suit, he says. Are you on parole, or haven't you ever been caught? says I. Yes, sir, he says, and smiled like it was a joke. Let's talk business, George, I says. 
The tailor we go to on 63rd walks two blocks to get our clothes, and two blocks to take them to his joint, and two blocks to bring them back, and he only soaks his 35 cents a suit. He gets poor pay, and he does poor work, says the burglar. When I press clothes, I press them right. Well, I says, the tailor on 63rd satisfies us. Suppose you don't do your best this time, but just give us 70 cents worth. But there was no chance for a bargain. He'd been in the business so long he'd become hardened and lost all regard for his fellow men. The missus slept, but I didn't. Instead, I'd done a few problems in arithmetic. Aside of what she gave up for postcards and stamps in Jacksonville, I'd spent two bucks for our lunch, about two more for my shave and my refreshments, one for a rough ride in a bus, one more for getting our trunk and grips carried round, two for having the clothes pressed, and about half a buck in tips to people I would never see again. Somewhere near nine dollars a day, not counting no hotel bill, and over two weeks of it yet to come. Oh, you rummy game at home, at half a cent a point. When our clothes came back, I woke her up and gave her the figures. But today's an exception, she says. After this, our meals will be included in the hotel bill, and we won't need to get our suits pressed only once a week, and you'll be shaving yourself. And there won't be no bus fare when we're staying in one place. Besides, we can practice economy all spring and all summer. I guess we need the practice, I says. And if you're going to crab all the time about expenses, says she, I will wish we had have stayed home. That'll make it unanimous, says I. Then she began sobbing about how I'd spoiled the trip, and I had to promise I wouldn't think no more of what we were spending. I might as well have promised to not worry when the White Sox lost or when I'd forgot to come home to supper. We went in the dining room about 6.30 and was showed to a table where there was another couple setting. They was husband and wife, I guess, but I don't know which was which. She was wielding the pencil and writing down their order. "'I guess I'll have clams,' he says. They disagreed with you last night, says she. All right, he says, I won't try them. Give me cream and tomato soup. You don't like tomatoes, she says. Well, I won't have no soup, says he. A little of the bluefish. The bluefish was no good at noon, she says. You better try the bass. All right, make it bass, he says, and them sweetbreads and a little roast beef and sweet potatoes and peas and vanilla ice cream and coffee. You wouldn't touch sweetbreads at home says she, and you can't tell what they'd be in a hotel. All right, cut out the sweetbreads, he says. I should think you'd have the stewed chicken, she says, and leave out the roast beef. Stewed chicken it is, says he. Stewed chicken and mashed potatoes and string beans and buttered toast and coffee. Will that suit you? Sure, he says, and she gave the slip to the waiter. George looked at it long enough to have read it three times, if he could have read it once, and then went out in the kitchen and got a trayful of whatever was handy. But the poor guy didn't get more than a taste of anything. She was watching him like a hawk, and no sooner would he delve into one victual than she'd yank the dish away from him and tell him to remember that health was more important than temporary happiness. I felt so sorry for him that I couldn't enjoy my own repast, and I told the wife that we'd have our breakfast apart from that stricken soul if I had to carry the case to old Al Cesar himself. In the evening we strolled across the street to the Ponts. That's supposed to be even swaller yet than where we were stopping at. We walked all over the place without recognizing anybody from our set. I finally warned the missus that if we didn't duck back to our room I'd probably have a heart attack from excitement, 
but she'd read in her Florida guide that the decorations and pictures were worth going miles to see, so we had to stand in front of them for a couple of hours and try to keep awake. Four or five of them was thrillers at that. Their names was Adventure, Discovery, Contest, and so on, but what they all should have been was called the lady who had mislaid her clothes. The hotel's named after the fellow that built it. He come from Spain, and they say he was hunting for some water that if he'd drunk it he'd feel young. I don't see myself how you could expect to feel young on water, but anyway he'd heard that this here kind of water could be found in St. Augustine, and when he couldn't find it he went into the hotel business and got even with the United States by charging five dollars a day and up for a room. Sunday morning we went into breakfast early, and I asked the head waiter if we could set at another table where there was no convalescent and his mate. At the same time I gave the said head waiter something that spoke louder than words. We were showed to a place way across the room from where we'd been the night before. It was a table for six, but the other four didn't come into our life until that night at supper. Meanwhile we went sightseeing. We visited Fort Marion, that would be a great protection against the Germans provided they fought with paper wads. We seen the city gate and the cathedral and the slave market, and then we took the boat over to Anastasia Island, that the ocean's on the other side of it. This trip made me homesick, because the people that was along with us on the boat looked just like the ones we'd often went with to Michigan City on the 4th of July. The boat landed on the bay side of the island, and from there we was drug over to the ocean side on a horse car. The horse walking to one side of the car instead of in front, so as he wouldn't get ran over. We stuck on the beach till dinner time, and then took the chariot back to the pavilion on the bay side, where a whole family served the meal and their pigs put on a cabaret. It was the best meal I'd had in dear old Dixie. Fresh oysters and chicken, mashed potatoes and gravy, and fish and pie, and the charges two bits a plate. "'Goodness gracious,' says the missus when I told her the price. "'This is certainly reasonable. I wonder how it happens.' "'Well,' I says, "'the family was probably washed up here by the tide "'and don't know they're in Florida.' "'When we got back to the hotel, "'there was only just time to clean up and go down to supper. "'We had no sooner got seated "'when our table companions breezed in. "'It was a man about forty-five "'that looked like he'd made his money in express "'in general hauling.' and he had his wife along and both their mother-in-laws. The shirt he had on was the one he'd started from home with if he lived in Yokohama. His women folks wore mourning with a touch of gravy here and there. "'You order for us, Jake,' says one of the ladies. So Jake grabbed the bill of fare, and his wife took the slip and pencil and waited for the dictation. "'Let's see,' he says. "'How about oyster cocktail?' "'Yes,' says the three Mrs. Black. Four oyster cocktails, then,' says Jake, "'and four orders of blue points.' "'The oysters is nice, too,' says I. "'They all gave me a cordial smile, and the ice was broke. "'Everything's good here,' says Jake. "'I bet you know,' I says. "'He seemed pleased at the compliment and went on dictating. Four chicken soups with rice,' he says, "'and four of the blue fish, and four veal chops breaded, "'and four roast chicken, and four boiled potatoes,' but it seemed his wife would rather have sweet potatoes. All right, says Jake, four boiled potatoes and four sweets, and chicken salad and some of that tapioca pudding and ice cream and tea. Is that satisfactory? Fine, says one of the mother-in-laws. Are you going to stay long? Says Mrs. Jake to my missus. The party addressed didn't look very clubby, but she was too polite to pull the cut direct. 
We leave tomorrow night, she says. Nobody asked her where we was going. We leave for Palm Beach, she says. That's a nice place, I guess, says one of the old ones. More people goes there than comes here. It ain't so expensive there, I guess. You're some guesser, says the missus, and freezes up. I asked Jake if he'd been to Florida before. No, he says, this is our first trip, but we're making up for lost time. We're seeing all there is to see and having everything the best. You're having everything all right, I says, but I don't know if it's the best or not. How long have you been here? A week tomorrow, says he, and we stay another week and then go to Ormond. Are you standing the trip okay? I asked him. Well, he says, I don't feel quite as good as when we first come. Kind of loggy, I says. Yes, kind of heavy, says Jake. I know what you ought to do, says I. You ought to go to a European plan hotel. Not while the war's on, he says. And besides, my mother's a poor sailor. Yes, says his mother. I'm a very poor sailor. Jake's mother can't stand the water, says Mrs. Jake. So I've begun to believe that Jake's wife's mother-in-law was a total failure as a jolly tar. Social intercourse was put an end to when the waiter staggered in with their order an iron. The missus seemed to have lost her appetite and just sat there looking grouchy and tapping her fingers on the tablecloth and acting like she was in a hurry to get away. I didn't eat much neither. It was more fun watching. Well, I says when we was out in the lobby, we finally got acquainted with some real people. Real people, says the missus curling her lip. What did you talk to them for? I couldn't resist, I says. Anybody that had ordered four oyster cocktails and four rounds of blue points is worth knowing. Well, she says, if they're there when we go in tomorrow morning, we'll get our table changed again, or you can eat with them alone. But they was absent from the breakfast board. They're probably staying in bed today to get their clothes washed, says the missus. Or maybe they're sick, I says. A change of oysters affects some people. I was for going over to the island again and getting another of them quarter banquets, but the program was for us to walk around town all morning and take a ride in the afternoon. First we went to St. George Street and visited the oldest house in the United States. Then we went to Hospital Street and seen the oldest house in the United States. Then we turned the corner and went down St. Francis Street and inspected the oldest house in the United States. Then we dropped into a soda fountain and I had an egg phosphate made from the oldest egg in the Western Hemisphere. We passed up lunch and got into a carriage drawn by the oldest horse in Florida, and we rode through the country all afternoon, and the driver told us some of the oldest jokes in the book. He felt it was only fair to give his customers a good time when he was charging a dollar an hour, and he had his gags rehearsed so he could tell the same one a thousand times and never change a word. And the horse knowed where the point come in everyone and stopped to laugh. We'd done our packing before supper, and by the time we got to our table, Jake and the mourners was through and gone. We didn't have to ask the waiter if they'd been there. He was perspiring like an evangelist. After supper, we said goodbye to the night clerk and twenty-two bucks. Then we bought ourselves another ride in the motor bus and landed at the station ten minutes before train time, so we only had an hour to wait for the train. Say, I don't know how many stations there is between New York and San Francisco, but there's twice as many between St. Augustine and Palm Beach. 
and our train stopped twice and started twice at every one. I gave up trying to sleep and looked out the window, amusing myself by reading the names of the different stops. The only one that expressed my sentiments was, oh golly. We was an hour and a half late pulling out of that joint, and I figured we'd be two hours to the bed getting into our destination, but the guy that made out the timetable must have had the engineer down pat, because when we went across the bridge over Lake Worth and landed at the Point Siena Depot, we was ten minutes ahead of time. There was about two dozen uniformed eefs on the job to meet us, and when I seen them all grab for our baggage with one hand and hold the other out face up, I knowed why they call it Palm Beach. Four. The Poinciana station's a couple of hundred yards from one end of the hotel, and that means it's close to five miles from the clerk's desk. By the time we'd registered and been gave our key and marathoned another five miles or so to where our room was located at, I was about ready for the inquest. But the missus was full of pep and wild to get down to breakfast and look over our stable mates. She says we would eat without changing our clothes. People would forgive us for not dressing up on account of just getting there. While she was looking out the window at the royal palms and buzzards, I moseyed about the broom, inspecting where the different doors led to. Pretty near the first one I opened went into a private bath. There, I says, they gave us the wrong room. Then my wife seen it and began to squeal. Goody, she says, we've got a bath, we've got a bath. But says I. They promised we wouldn't have none. It must be a mistake. Never you mind about a mistake, she says. This is our room, and they can't chase us out of it. We'll chase ourselves out, I says. Rooms with a bath is fifteen and sixteen dollars and up. Rooms without no bath is bad enough. We'll keep this room, or I won't stay here, she says. All right, you win, I says, but I didn't mean it. I made her set in the lobby downstairs while I went to the clerk, pretending that I had to see about our trunk. Say, I says to him, you've made a bad mistake. You told your man in Chicago that we couldn't have no room with a bath, and now you've give us one. You're lucky, he says. A party who had a bath ordered for those two weeks canceled their reservation, and now you've got it. Lucky am I, I says, and how much is the luck going to cost me? It'll be $17 per day for that room, he says, and turned away to hide a blush. I went back to the wife. Do you know how much we're paying for that room, I says? We're paying $17. Well, she says, our meals is throwed in. Yes, says I, and the hotel furnishes a key. You promised in St. Augustine, she says, that you wouldn't worry no more about expenses. Well, rather than make a scene in front of the bellhops and the few millionaires that was able to be about at that hour of the morning, I just says, all right, and led her to the dining room. The head waiter met us at the door and turned us over to his assistant. Then some assistants took hold of us one at a time, and we was relayed to a beautiful spot next to the door of the kitchen and bounded on all sides by posts and pillars. It was all right for me, but a whole lot too private for the missus. So I had to call the fellow that had been our pacemaker on the last lap. We don't like this table, I says. It's the only one I can give you, he says. I slipped him half a buck. Come to think of it, he says, I believe there's one I forgot all about. So he moved us way up near the middle of the place. Say you ought to have seen that dining room. From one end of it to the other is a toll call. 
and if a man that was settin' at the table farthest from the kitchen ordered roast lamb, he'd get mutton. At that they was crowded for fare, and it kept the head waiters hustlin' to find enough space for one and all. It was round nine o'clock when we put on our modest order for orange juice, oatmeal, liver and bacon, and cakes and coffee, and a quarter to ten or so when our waiter returned from the nearest orange grove with Exhibit A. We amused ourselves, meanwhile, but by giving our neighbors the once-over, and wondering which of them was going to pal with us. As far as I could tell from the glances we received, there wasn't no immediate danger of us being annoyed by attentions. There was only a few women folks on deck, and they was dressed pretty quiet, so quiet that the missus was scared she'd shock em with the sport skirt she'd bought in Chai. Later on in the day, when the girls come out for their dress parade, the missus costume made about as much noise as eating marshmallows in a foundry. After breakfast we went to the room for a change of raiment. I put on my white trousers, and wished to heaven that the sun would go under a cloud till I got used to telling people without words just where my linen began and I left off. The rest of my outfit was white shoes that hurt, and white socks, and a two-dollar silk shirt that showed up a zebra and a red tie, and a soft collar, and a blue coat. The missus wore a sport suit that I won't try and describe. You'll probably see it on her sometime in the next five years. We went downstairs again and out on the porch where some of the old birds was taking a sunbath. Where now, I says. The beach, of course, says the missus. Where is it at, I asked her. I suppose, she says, that we'll find it somewheres near the ocean. I don't believe you can stand this climate, says I. The ocean, she says, must be down at the end of that avenue where most everybody seems to be headed. Having went back to our room and back twice, I don't feel like another five-mile hike, I says. It ain't no five miles, she says, but let's ride anyway. Come on, says I, pointing to a street car that was standing in the middle of the avenue. Oh, no, she says. I've watched and found out that the real people takes them funny-looking wheelchairs. I was wondering what she meant when one of them pretty near run over us. It was part bicycle, part go-kart, and part African. In the one we dodged, there was room for one passenger, but some of them carried two. I wonder what they'd soak us for the trip, I says. Not more than a dime, I wouldn't believe, says the missus. But when we'd hired one, and been whisked down under the palms and past the golf field to the bathhouse, we was obliged to part with fifty cents legal and tender. I feel much refreshed, I says. I believe when it comes time to go back, I'll be able to walk. The bathhouse is across the street from the other hotel, the Breakers, that the man had told us was full for the season. Both buildings fronts on the ocean, and boy, it's some ocean. I bet there's fish in there that's never seen each other. Oh, let's go bathing right away, says the missus. Our suits is up to the other beanery, says I, and was glad of it. There was nothing tempting to me about them man-eating waves. But the wife's a persistent cuss. We won't go today, she says, but we'll go in the bathhouse and get some rooms for tomorrow. The bathhouse porch was a ringer for the Follies. Here and down on the beach was where you see the costumes at this time of day. I was so busy rubbering that I passed the entrance door three times without noticing it. From the top of their heads to the bottom of their feet, the girls was a mess of colors. There was no two dressed alike, and if any one of them had to walk down State Street, we'd have had an epidemic of stiff necks to contend with and shy. Finally, the missus grabbed me and hauled me into the office. 
two private rooms, she says to the clerk, one lady and one gent. Five dollars a week apiece, he says, but we're all filled up. You ought to be all locked up, I says. Will you have anything open tomorrow? asks the missus. I think I can fix you then, he says. What do we get for the five? I asked him. Private room, and we take care of your bathing suit, says he. How much if you don't take care of the suit? I asked him. My suit's been getting along fine with very little care. Five dollars a week apiece, he says, and if you want the rooms, you'd better take them because they're in big demand. By the time we'd closed this grand bargain, everybody had moved off on the porch and down to the water, where a couple dozen of them went in for a swim, and the rest sat and watched. There was a long row of chairs on the beach for spectators, and we was just going to flop into two of them when another bandit come up and told us it cost a dime apiece per hour. "'We're going to be here two weeks,' I says. "'Will you sell us two chairs?' He wasn't in no comical mood, so we sunk down on the sand and seen the show from there. We had plenty of company that preferred these kinds of seats free to the chairs at ten cents a whack. Besides, the people that was in the water getting knocked down by the waves and pretending like they enjoyed it, about half of the gang on the sand was wearing bathing suits just to be clubby. You could tell by looking at the suits that they had never been wet and wasn't intended for no such ridiculous purpose. I wished I could describe them to you, but it'd take a female to do it right. One little girl, either fourteen or twenty-four, had white silk slippers and socks that come pretty near up to her ankles, and from there to her knees it was just plain nature. Northbound from her knees was a pair of bicycle trousers that disappeared when they came to the bottom of her mother Hubbard. This here garment was a thing without no necks or sleeves that began bulging at the top and spread out gradual all the way down, like a croquet. To top her off, she had a jockey cap, and believe me, I'd have played her mount across the board. There was plenty of class in the field with her, but nothing that approached her speed. Later on I seen her several times around the hotel, wearing something near the same outfit, without the jockey cap, and with longer croquets. We sat there in the sand till people begun to get up and leave. Then we trailed along back of them to the breaker's porch, where there was music to dance and stuff to inhale. "'Well, grab a table,' I says to the missus. "'I'm dying of thirst.' But I was allowed to keep on dying. "'I can serve you something soft,' says the waiter. "'I bet you can't,' I says. "'You ain't got no locker here?' he says. "'What do you mean, locker?' I asked him. "'It's the locker liquor law,' he says. "'We can serve you a drink if you own your own bottles.' "'I'd just as soon own a bottle,' I says. "'I'll become the proprietor of a bottle of beer.' "'It'll take three or four hours to get it for you,' he says, "'and you'll have to order it through the order desk. "'If you're stopping at one of the hotels "'and want a drink once in a while, "'you better get busy and put in an order.' "'So I had to watch the missus put away a glass of orange juice "'that cost forty cents, "'and that was just the same size "'as they gave us for breakfast free for nothing. "'And not having had nothing to make me forget that my feet hurt, "'I was obliged to pay another four bits for an Afromobile "'to cart us back to our own boarding house.' "'Well,' says the missus when we got there, "'it's time to wash up and go to lunch.' "'Wash up and go to lunch, then,' I says, "'but I'm going to investigate this here locker-licker or liquor-locker law.' "'So she got her key and beat it, and I limped to the bar. "'I want a highball,' I says to the boy. "'What's your number?' says he. "'It varies,' I says. "'Sometimes I can hold twenty, and sometimes four or five makes me sing.' 
I mean, have you got a locker here, he says. No, but I want to get one, says I. The gent over there to the desk will fix you, says he. So over to the desk I went and asked for a locker. What do you drink? asks the gent. I'm from Chicago, I says. I drink bourbon. What's your name and room number, he says, and I told him. Then he asked me how often did I shave, and what did I think of the Kaiser, and what my name was before I got married, and if I had any intentions of ever running an elevator. Finally, he says I was all right. I'll order you some bourbon, he says. Anything else? I was going to say no, but I happen to remember that the wife generally always wants a bronix before dinner. So I had to also put in a bid for a bottle of gin and bottles of the Vermouth brothers, Tony and Pierre. It wasn't till later that I appreciated what a grand law this here law was. When I got my drinks, I paid ten cents apiece for em for service, besides paying for the bottles of stuff to drink. And besides that, about every third highball or bronics I ordered, the waiter'd bring back word that I was just out of ingredients, and then there'd be another delay while they sent to the garage for more. If they had that law all over the country, there'd soon be an end of drinking, because everybody gets so mad they'd kill each other. My cross-examination had took quite a long time, but when I got back to my room, the wife wasn't back from lunch yet, and I had to cover the marathon route all over again and look her up. We only had the one key to the room, and of course couldn't expect no more than that at the price. The missus had brought one of the daily programs they get out, and she knowed just what we had to do the rest of the day. For the next couple of hours, she says, we can suit ourselves. All right, says I. It suits me to take off my shoes and lay down. I'll rest too, she says. But at half past four, we have to be in the coconut grove for tea and dancing. And then we come back to the room and dress for dinner. Then we eat, and then we sit around till the evening dance starts. Then we dance till we're ready for bed. Who do we dance all these dances with? I asked her. Well, whoever we get acquainted with, she says. All right, says I, but let's be careful. Well, we took our nap, and we followed schedule and had our tea in the coconut grove. You know how I love tea. My feet were still aching, and the missus couldn't talk me into no dance. When we'd sat there an hour and was saturated with tea, the wife says it was time to go up and change into our tuxedos. I was all in when we reached the room, and willing to even pass up supper and nestle in the hay. But I was informed that the biggest part of the day's doings was yet to come, so from six o'clock till after seven I wrestled with studs and hooks and eyes that didn't act like they'd ever met before, and wasn't anxious to get acquainted, and then down we went again to the dining room. How about a little bronex before the feed, I says. It would taste good, says the missus. So I called Eve and gave him the order. In something less than half an hour he came back empty handed. You ain't got no cocktail stuff, he says. I certainly have, says I. I ordered it early this afternoon. Where at? he asked me. Over in the bar, I says. Oh, the regular bar, he says. That don't count. You got to have stuff at the service bar to get it served in here. I ain't as thirsty as I thought I was, says I. Me neither, says the missus. So we went ahead and ordered our meal, and while we was waiting for it, a young couple come and took the other two chairs at our table. They didn't have to announce through a megaphone that they was honeymooners. It was wrote all over em. They was reaching under the table for each other's hands every other minute, and when they wasn't doing that, they was smiling at each other or giggling at nothing. You couldn't feel that good and be paying $17 a day for room and board unless you was just married or something. I thought at first our company would be fun, 
but after a few meals it got like the southern cooking and began to undermine the health. The conversation between they and us was what you could call limited. It took place the next day at lunch. The young husband thought he was about to take a bite of the entry, which happened to be roast mutton with syrup, but he couldn't help from looking at her at the same time, and his empty fork started for his face, prongs up. Look out for your eye, I says. He dropped the fork, and they both blushed till you could see it right through the sunburn. Then they gave me a Mexican look, and our acquaintance was at an end. This first night, when we was through eating, we wandered out in the lobby and took seats where we could watch the passing show. The men was all dressed like me, except I was up to date and had on a mushroom shirt while they was sporting the old-fashioned concrete bosom. The women's dresses begun at the top with a belt, and some of them stopped at the mezzanine floor, while others went clear down to the basement and helped keep the rugs clean. There was one that must have thought it was the Fourth of July. From the top of her head to where the top of her bathing suit had left off, she was a red, red rose. From there to the top of her gown was white, and her gown, what there was of it, was blue. My, says the missus, what stunning gowns. Yes, says I, and you could have one just like em if you'd take the shade off and the piano lamp at home and cut it down to the right size. Round ten o'clock we wandered in the palm garden, where the dancing had been renewed. The wife wanted to plunge right in the mazes of the foxy trot. It'll take some courage first, says I. And then was when I found out that it cost you ten cents extra besides the tip to pay for a drink that you already owned in fee simple. Well, I guess we must have danced about six dances together and had that many quarrels before she was ready to go to bed. And oh, how grand that old hay pile felt when I finally bounced into it. The next day we went to the ocean at the legal hour, half past eleven. I never had so much fun in my life. The surf was running high, I heard him say, and I don't know which I'd rather do, go bathing in the ocean at Palm Beach when the surf is running high, or have a dentist get one of my molars ready for a big inlay at a big outlay. Once in a while I managed to not get thrown on my head when a wave hit me. As for swimming, you had as much chance as if you was at State and Madison at the noon hour. And before I'd been in a minute, there was enough salt in my different features to keep the Blackstone Hotel running all through the onion season. The missus enjoyed it as much as me. She tried to pretend at first, and when she got floored, she'd give a squeal that was supposed to mean heavenly bliss. But after she'd been bruised from head to feet, and her hair looked and felt like spinach with French dressing, and she drank all she could hold of the Gulf Stream, she didn't resist none when I drug her in the shore and staggered with her up to our private rooms at five a week per each. Without consulting her, I went to the desk at the casino and told them they could have them rooms back. All right, says the clerk, and turned our keys over to the next in line. How about a refund, I asked him, but he was waiting on somebody else. After that, we done our bathing in the tub. But we was down to the beach every morning at 11.30 to watch the rest of them get batted around. And at half past twelve every day, we'd follow the crowd to the breaker's porch and dance together, the missus and I. Then I'd be back to the other hostelry, sometimes limping and sometimes in an afromobile, and a drink or two in the palm garden before lunch. And after lunch we'd lay down, or we'd pay some eef two or three dollars to peddle us through the winding jungle trail that was every bit as wild as the Art Institute or we'd ferry across Lake Worth to West Palm Beach and take in a movie, 
or would stand in front of the portable Fifth Avenue stores while the missus wished she could have this dress or that hat or something else she couldn't have looked at if she'd been at home and in her right mind. But always at half-past four we had to live up to the rules and be in the coconut grove for tea and some more foxy-trotting. And then it was dress for dinner, eat dinner, watch the parade, and wind up the glorious day with more dancing. I'll bet you any amount you name that the castles in their whole life haven't danced together as much as I and the missus did at Palm Beach. I'd have gave five dollars if even one of the waiters had took her off in my hands for one dance. But I know that if I made the offer public, there'd been a really serious quarrel between us instead of just the minor brawls occasioned by stepping on each other's feet. She made a discovery one night. She found out there was a place called the Beach Club, where most of the real people disappeared to every evening after dinner. She says we would have to go there, too. But I ain't a member, I says. Then find out how you get to be one, she says. So to the Beach Club I went and made inquiries. You'll have to be introduced by a guy that already belongs, says the man at the door. Who belongs, I asked him. Hundreds of people, he says. Who do you know? Two waiters, two barkeepers, and one elevator boy, I says. He laughed, but his laugh didn't get me no membership card, and I had to dance three or four extra times the next day to square myself with the missus. She made another discovery, and it cost me six bucks. She found out that though the meals in the regular dining room was included in the trifling rates per day, the real people had at least two of their meals in the garden grill and paid extra for them. We tried it for one meal, and I must say I enjoyed it, all but the check. We can't keep up that clip, I says to her. We could, says she, if you wasn't spending so much on your locker. The locker's a matter of life and death, I says. There ain't no man in the world that could dance as much with her own wife as I do and live without liquid stimulus. When we'd been there four days, she got to be on speaking terms with a lady's maid that hung around the lobby and helped put the costumes back on when they slipped off. From this here maid, the missus learned who was who, and the information was relayed to me as soon as there was a chance. We'd be sitting on the porch when I'd feel an elbow in my ribs all of a sudden. I'd look up at who was passing and then try and pretend I was excited. Who is it? I'd whisper. That's Mrs. Vandevetter, the wife would say. Her husband's the biggest streetcar conductor in Philadelphia. Or somebody had sat beside us at the beach or at the palm garden, and my ribs would get all battered up before the missus was calm enough to tip me off. The Vincents, she'd say, the canned pruned people. It was a little bit thrilling at first to be rubbing elbows with all them celebs. But it got so finely that I could walk out of the dining room right behind Scotty the opera singer without forgetting that my feet hurt. The Washington's birthday ball brought them all together at once, and the missus pointed out eight and nine at a time and got me so mixed up that I didn't know Pat Vanderbilt from Maggie Rockefeller. The only one you couldn't make no mistake about was a Russian count you couldn't pronounce. He was buying bay mules or something for the Russian government, and he was in ambush. They say he can't hardly speak a word of English, says the missus. If I knowed the word for barbershop in Russia, says I, I'd tell him there was one in this hotel. 5. In our mailbox the next morning, there was a notice that our first week was up, and all we owed was $146.50. The bill for room and meals was 
The rest was for getting clothes pressed and keeping the locker damp. I didn't have no appetite for breakfast. I told the wife I'd wait up in the room and for her to come when she got through. When she blew in, I had my speech prepared. Look here, I says. This is our eighth day in Palm Beach society. You're on speaking terms with a maid, and I've got acquainted with half a dozen of the male hired help. It's cost us about $165, including them private rooms down to the casino and our Afromobile trips, and this and that. You know a whole lot of swell people by sight, but you can't talk to them. It'd be just as much satisfaction and hundreds of dollars cheaper to look up their names in the telephone directory at home, then phone to them, and when you got them, tell them it was the wrong number. That way, you'd get them to speak to you, at least. As for sport, I says, we don't play golf, and we don't play tennis, and we don't swim. We go through the same program of doing nothing every day. We dance, but we don't never change partners. For twelve dollars, I could buy a phonograph up home, and I and you could trot around the living room all evening without no danger of having some of them fancy birds cave our shins in. And we could have twice as much liquid refreshments up there at about a twentieth the cost. That ghoul I met on the train coming down, I says, was an even bigger liar than I give him credit for. He says that when he was here, people pestered him to death by coming up and speaking to him. We ain't had to dodge nobody or hide behind a coconut tree to remain exclusive. He says Palm Beach was too common for him. What he should have said was that it was too lonesome. If there was just one white man here that had listened to my stuff, I wouldn't have no kick. But it ain't no pleasure telling stories to the Eves. They laugh whether it's good or not, and then want a dime for laughing. As for our clothes, I says, they would be all right for a couple of days' stay. But the dames round here, and the men too, have something different to put on every morning, afternoon, and night. You've wore your two evening gowns so much that I just have to snap my finger at the hooks, and they go and grab the right eyes. The meals would be grand, I says, if the cook didn't keep getting mixed up and putting pudding sauce on the meat and gravy on the pie. I'm glad we've been to Palm Beach, I says. I wouldn't have missed it for nothing. But the ocean won't be no different tomorrow than it was yesterday, and the same for the daily program. It don't even rain here to give us a little variety. Now what do you say, I says, to us just settling the bill, and whatever we owe since then, and beating it out of here just as fast as we can go? The missus didn't say nothing for a while. She was too busy crying. She knowed that what I said was the truth, but she wouldn't give up without a struggle. Just three more days, she says finally. If we don't meet somebody worth meeting in the next three days, I'll go wherever you want to take me. All right, I says. Three more days it is. What's a little matter of sixty dollars? Well, in them next two days and a half, she done some desperate flirting. But as it was all with women, I didn't get jealous. She picked out some of the elite of Chicago and tried every trick she could think of. She told them their noses was shiny and offered them her powder. She stepped on their white shoes just so to get a chance to beg their pardon. She told them their clothes was unhooked and then unhooked them so she could hook them up again. She tried to loan them her fingernail tools. When she seen one fanning herself, she'd say, Excuse me, Mrs. So-and-so. But well, we got the coolest room in the hotel, and I'd be glad to have you go up there and quit perspiring. 
but not a rise did she get. Not till the afternoons of the third day of grace. And I don't know if I ought to tell you this or not, only I'm sure you won't spill it nowheres. We'd went up in our room after lunch. I was tired out, and she was discouraged. We'd sat round for over an hour, not saying or doing nothing. I wanted to talk about the chance of us getting away the next morning, but I didn't dast bring up the subject. The missus complained of it being hot and opened the door to leave the breeze go through. She was sitting in a chair near the doorway, pretending to read the Palm Beach News. All of a sudden she jumped up and kind of hissed at me. "'What's the matter?' I says, springing from the lounge. "'Come here,' she says, and went out the door into the hall. I got there as fast as I could, thinking it was a rat or a fire, but the missus just pointed to a lady walking away from us six or seven doors down. It's Mrs. Potter, she says, the Mrs. Potter from Chicago. Oh, I says, putting all the excitement I could into my voice. And I was just starting back into the room when I seen Mrs. Potter stop and turn around and come toward us. She stopped again about twenty feet from where the missus was standing. Are you on this floor, she says. The missus shook like a leaf. Yes says she, so low you couldn't hardly hear her. "'Please see there's some towels put in 559,' says THE Mrs. Potter from Chicago. 6. About five o'clock the wife quieted down, and I thought it was safe to talk to her. "'I've been reading in the guide about a pretty river trip,' I says. "'We can start from here on the boat tomorrow morning. They run to Fort Pierce tomorrow and stay there tomorrow night.' The next day they go from Fort Pierce to Rockledge, and the day after that from Rockledge to Daytona. The fare is only five dollars apiece, and we can catch a northbound train at Daytona. All right, I don't care, says the missus. So I left her and went downstairs and across the street to ask Mr. Foster. Ask Mr. Foster happened to be a girl. She sold me the boat tickets and promised she would reserve a broom with bath for us at Fort Pierce, where we was to spend the following night. I bet she knowed all the while that rooms with a bath in Fort Pierce is scarcer than toes on a sturgeon. I went back to the room and helped with the packing in an advisory capacity. Neither one of us had the heart to dress for dinner. We ordered something sent up and got soaked an extra dollar for service. But we was past caring for a little thing like that. At nine o'clock the next morning, the good ship Constitution stopped at the Point Siena dock while we piled aboard. One bellhop was down to see us off, and it cost me a quarter to get that much attention. Mrs. Potter must have overslept herself. The boat was loaded to the guards, and I ain't bragging when I say that we was the best-looking people aboard. And as for manners, why, say, old Bill Sykes could have passed off for Henry Chesterfield and that gang. Each one of them occupied three of the deck chairs and sprayed orange juice all over their neighbors. We could have talked to plenty of people here, all right. They were as clubby a gang as I ever seen. But I was afraid that if I said something, they'd have to answer, and with their mouths as full of citrus fruit as they were, the results might have been fatal to my light suit. We went up the lake to a canal and then through it to Indian River. The boat ran aground every few minutes and had to be pried loose. About twelve o'clock, a colored gentleman came up on deck and told us lunch was ready. At half-past one, he served it, 
at a long family table in the cabin. As far as I was concerned, he might as well have left it on the stove. Even if he could have bit into the food, a glimpse of your fellow diners would have strangled your appetite. After the repast, I called the missus aside. Something tells me we're not going to live through three days of this, I says. What about taking the train from Fort Pierce and beating it for Jacksonville and then home? But that'd get us to Chicago too quick, says she. We told people how long we was going to be gone, and if we got back ahead of time, they would think there was something queer. There's too much queer on this boat, I says. But you're going to have your own way from now on. We landed in Fort Pierce about six. It was only two or three blocks to the hotel, but when they laid out that part of town, they overlooked some of the modern conveniences, including sidewalks. We staggered through the sand with our grips, and sure had worked up a hunger by the time we reached Ye Inn. Got reservations for us here? I asked the clerk. Yes, he says, and led us to him in person. The room he showed us didn't have no bath, or even a chair that you could sit on while you pulled off your socks. Where's the bath? I asked him. This way, he says, and I followed him down the hall, outdoors, and up an alley. Finally, we come to a bathroom, complete in all details, except it didn't have no door. I went back to the room, got the missus, and went down to supper. Well, sir, I wish you could have been present at that supper. The choice of meats was calves, liver, and onions, or calves, liver, and onions. And I bet if them calves that had still been living yet, they could have gave us some personal reminiscences about Garfield. The missus gave the banquet one look and then laughed for the first time in several days. The guy that named this burg got the capitals mixed, I says. It should have been Port Fierce. And she laughed still heartier. Taking advantage, I says, how about the train from here to Jacksonville? You win, says she. We can't get home too soon to suit me. 7. The morning we landed in Chicago, it was about eight above, and a wind was coming off in the lake a mile a minute. But it didn't faze us. Lord, says the missus, ain't it grand to be home? You said something, says I, but wouldn't it have been grander if we hadn't never left? I don't know about that, she says. I think we both of us learned a lesson. Yes, I says. And the tuition wasn't only a matter of close to seven hundred bucks. Oh, says she, we'll get that back easy. How, I asked her, do you expect some tips on the market from Mrs. Potter and the rest of your new friends? No, she says, we'll win it. We'll win it in the rummy game with the hatches. End of Gullible's Travels